be seated. So if you will recall at our business meeting we had, so we, uh, Casey talked about, uh, uh, Chris talked about the fact that we had, uh, as we were in the budget process, we were also, we had provided, and we were in the process of providing our finances, our receipts, our expenditures over the last, uh, really what was three years, I believe, uh, and we were uh, letting uh, the, the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention Foundation, which is an entity uh, within the SBTC, uh, and they were going to do a, a review, uh, you know, more than just an audit, but a review of, of where we were, what we looked like, what did it look like over the progression over those years, and, uh, and then Bart McDonald, who's the executive director of that organization, he has come and he's presented uh, to the deacon body, he's presented to uh, uh, the finance committee, and so we're blessed to have him here this morning as he's going to share some out of the word with us. Uh, and then we'll continue a little bit of time uh, at, in the Sunday school hours. So with that, Bart, it's a pleasure to see you again, and uh, I'll turn it over to you. is living and active it is sharper than a double-edged sword it pierces through to divide joint and marrow soul and spirit it judges the very thoughts and the attitudes of our heart the Bible speaking about its inspiration the fact that it's God breathed says just like when rain falls from the heavens and waters the earth and brings forth seed for the sower, so God's word is, it never returns unto him void. Amen? Amen. The most important thing I'll do today is not talk to you about numbers. The most important thing we'll do together today is open God's word and see what it has uh, for us on this occasion. We'll be in Luke's gospel this morning. In chapters 15 and 16. As you're turning there, let me suggest a couple of things that I believe are true. In all probability, you are more familiar with Luke 15 and the gospel parable of the prodigal son than most of the parables that Jesus taught. I've heard it preached innumerable times. In my growing up, I've heard it preached through many filters where they focused on the father, the prodigal son. But I've heard very few sermons in my formative years on the parable that follows in Luke 16. And my suggestion to you this morning as God's people is that you cannot properly digest and hear God's word in Luke 15 without also hearing Luke chapter 16. They are in all probability continuous teachings and so we're going to look at both today. Because it's an extended passage of scripture, allow me to do this. Allow me to story tell what you already know pretty well. How many parable of the prodigal son? Raise your hand. Heard a lot of haven't you? 
Notice that as Luke 15 opens, the parable of the prodigal son is the third stanza of one parable. It does not stand alone. It stands in conjunction with two first kind of verses or core, you know, if it was a song, it would have verse one, verse two, and verse three. Behold, there was a shepherd. He had a hundred sheep. He discovered one was missing. And so he leaves the 99 care of perhaps of another shepherd. He goes out seeking that one which is lost. And, and, and when he finds it, he returns and says to them, the audience, rejoice with me. For this sheep which was lost I have found. Jesus said, I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous who need no repentance. 100 sheep, one missing, one shepherd, a search and recovery mission success. Finding a sheep that wanders away, which the scripture uses to describe you and me as God's children. Is that not true? That we all like sheep have gone astray? And we have a shepherd who seeks us out he goes to where we are. He removes us from harmful circumstances and returns us to the fold. 100 sheep, one lost, one shepherd. And then the parable continues in verse 8. Or if a woman, if she has 10 coins, but suddenly discovers that one is missing, does she not tear the house apart, remove everything, and search diligently until she finds it? And when she... And when she finds it, she goes to perhaps her neighbors and said, listen, uh, when she finds it, she calls together her friends and she says, rejoice with me for the, I have found the, cost, uh, the, the coin in which I lost. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. Something lost something diligently searched for, something found, followed by a celebration, and he's tying it to sinners who are repenting and being returned to safety. One shepherd, a hundred sheep, one missing, one lady, ten coins, one missing, both found, both then with their neighbors saying, hey, rejoice with me, because I found that which was lost. And then the familiar parable of the prodigal son. And he said a man had two sons. Do you see the progression? A hundred to one, ten to one, two to one. Now notice this at the front of the parable. That in verse one it says the tax gatherers, the collectors, and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. That would be a, 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 a great circumstance in any church for a preacher to be able to stand and to have exposure to people who do not know the truth of the gospel. Amen. To where a man could come and stand, open God's word, be amongst people that God loves, though they're not yet redeemed. Even then, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for ungodly people, not godly people. That his will is not that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the Pharisees 
and the scribes in chapter 15, verse 2, the religious folk are grumbling, saying, Jesus receives sinners and even eats with them. Can you imagine that? You see, because what's doing here is that that is the bookend that starts the whole story. We're going to look at the other bookend, which is at the tail end of the parable in chapter 16. But it has to do with religious people outwardly missing the entire point of what Jesus came to do. Which is preach the good news to sinners so that people could repent, turn from their wayward ways... And return so that the Father might rejoice. A hundred sheep, one missing, one shepherd who goes and finds ten coins, one missing, a woman who tears apart everything to find it. And now a dad with only two sons. And the younger of them says to, to his dad, he says, listen, divide the inheritance with me. I, I want what is your wealth and it's almost as if the son is saying I want you to act like you're already dead and give me what's coming to me and so the scripture says and you need not to miss this because it's very important and so the father divided his estate between in verse 12 them not just the younger brother but them the two sons in the Old Testament law the oldest son merits a double portion of the estate. So for every dollar that the dad gave the younger brother, he gave the older brother two. And so as this younger brother then receives the resources of the father, not many days later, he gathers everything together. He goes on a journey. He goes into a distant country and there he squanders his estate with loose living. And when he had spent it all, when he had absolutely no more resources, there was a famine in the country and he began to be impoverished. And so he went and he took a job. He hired himself out as a pig farmer, a pig, a tender of pigs, which for a Jewish boy had to be the lowest of the low. Because a pig is an unclean animal in accordance with the law. And so as he's now spent everything, after he's wasted everything, after he doesn't have any friends because his friends left him, he takes a job doing whatever he can. And the scripture says that as he even fed these pigs day by day, that he would have gladly filled his stomach from the pods that the pigs were eating. He was hungry. He had nothing. And there was nobody giving anything to him. Destitute. In crisis. And then the scripture says he has a moment of clarity where he comes to his senses. He comes to his senses and he says, man, the servants in my father's household have it better than this. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up. I'm going to go home and I'm going to say to my dad, I'm no worthy longer, I'm no, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me as one of your hired servants so I can have a place to sleep and something to eat. And so he gets up out of the filth, 
and the stench of a pig pen, and he begins a long journey home. I was in Austin, Texas this past weekend and saw quite a few homeless people. Our major cities are being populated with people that are living on the streets. And what, a, what, what, what reminded me of this parable is just their general appearance. They're, they're unkept, they're dirty, they, they look a little bit, sometimes almost scary. But that's the physical imagery of this, of this younger son. As he journeys back home, I want you to imagine what he must have even physically looked like as it relates to his appearance. And so as he journeys and he gets up and goes back to the father, the scripture says that while he was yet a long way off, the father earnestly, longingly, with his eyes fixed on the horizon, sees his wayward son coming home. And you know the story. Gathers up his clothing and he begins to run, to sprint to the boy. And as he gets close to the boy, the boy starts the speech that he's rehearsed. Father, I'm, I'm no longer, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father interrupts him and says, quick, go get a robe. Go get my signet ring. Put sandals on his feet. Go kill the fatted calf for this son of mine, which was lost, is now found. He's come home. He's come to his senses. He's, he's moved from a place of harmfulness to, to the safety of home. Beautiful imagery. I've heard entire sermons preached just on the Father. But friends, that's not the point of this parable. Parables have a specific point. And the point of the parable is still in the following verses. Because as the Father celebrates the return of His Son, as they make elaborate preparations for a feast, and they come into the house and begin to party, the older brother is still laboring in the fields, been faithful to his dad, been doing all the things that his dad would want a son to do. But as he comes to the house, you know the story, he hears this great, uh, this great partying, this great merriment. He said, what's going on? He asked one of the field hands, what's going on? He said, your younger brother has come home. And your father has killed the fatted calf and he's celebrating inside. And this made the older son Full of rage. Full of anger. So much so that he refused. He refused to even go in. And so the father, just like he was earnestly watching for the younger son to return home from a far country, I'm sure his expectation is, I can't wait till my older son gets out of the field. Surely he'll come in. So the only reason we know, he must have been asking, Where's, I don't know, what's his name? We can make up a name. What should we call it? Buford. Where's Buford? Well, he's still out in the field. Where's Buford? He's still out in the field. Where's Buford? Well, he, he's in the field, but he's outside and he's hotter than a hornet. And so the father leaves the party and goes to his older son. And, and before he can even say anything, just like the younger son who tried to talk to dad first, the older son unloads on his father. He said, listen, you've never even killed even a, a young cat, a cat, piece of cattle or a lamb for me and my friends to have a party. Yet this younger son of yours wastes your money on prostitutes and riotous living and you kill the fatted calf? And the father's response is, we had to. Oh, this, this brother of yours was lost. He was, 
He was in danger. This son of yours comes home and devours your wealth with prostitutes. Here's an angry young man in comparison to a repentant younger brother. Both interacting with the father and the father interrupting both. And he says, son, you've always been with me. And everything I have is yours. In fact, when I divided the estate, you got twice what I gave your brother. But we had to celebrate. We had to rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and now has begun to live. He was lost and now he's found. And so before you can get a resolve to the story, the curtain drops. Because as the parable opens, I have religious Pharisees and scribes who have missed the entire point of the gospel, grumbling because Jesus receives sinners unto himself and even has a party with them, eats with them. You see, the parable of the prodigal son has one simple question that's unresolved. Who is the prodigal son? It is not the younger brother. It is the older. Because as the parable concludes, I have a younger repentant brother who's come home, who's been restored into the family heritage of a father. And I have a father pleading with an older son outside who is angry and bitter and refuses to rejoice at the priority of lost things that have been recovered. You see how the parable's moving? A hundred sheep, one lost, search and recovery, come back, rejoice with me. I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, over 99 righteous who need no repentance. See, the Pharisees' problem is that they supposed that they were righteous. You do recognize, friends, that the only righteousness that we can claim is the righteousness imputed to us through the perfection of Christ Jesus. That there's none righteous, not even one. That on that final day, even the best work I've ever done for the Lord is but filthy rags in his sight, the scripture says. There's none who seek God. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Do you see how the scripture is beginning to echo into this parable? Now, chapter 16, the focal point of our time together. You see, because 15 is a parable, not a parables, a single parable with three stanzas. I've heard preachers preach a parable on the lost sheep. I've heard preachers preach parables on the lost coin. I've heard preachers preach parable, uh, uh, sermons on the parable of the prodigal son through half a dozen different filters. But he was teaching them a parable in response to what he knew they were thinking. And then chapter 16 continues, now he was also saying to his disciples. You see how the two parables are, are linked? Luke is our most concise compiler of the gospel account. And so Jesus is teaching one parable to confront the hypocrisy of Pharisees and now he's also saying to his disciples a second parable it is the parable 
of the unjust steward. Let's read it together. Two parables, five parallels between the parables, six principles, and only one challenge to you as God's people. Two parables, five parallels between the parables. What we're going to see is as we look at these parables side by side, they have identical characteristics. Two parables, five comparisons, parallels, six principles that we can draw from both of them together in one challenge. Now, they was also saying to the disciples, chapter 16, verse 1, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. Sound familiar? What did the younger son do? After he got daddy's wealth, he went and he squandered, he scattered, he wasted the resources of the father. Here's a parable now of a rich man who had a manager, a steward, and the steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And so the master calls him and says to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your stewardship or your management, for you can no longer be my steward. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master's taking away the stewardship or the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. And then he comes up with this, this plan, this idea. I know what I'll do. So that when I am removed or fired from the management, other people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of the master's debtors. He began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, quick, take your bill, write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. He had acted in wisdom for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, Jesus speaking to his disciples, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. Uh, King James, I memorized this in, the mammon of unrighteousness. Make friends for yourselves from unrighteous mammon so that when it fails, not if it fails, but when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings, not earthly dwellings, eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. It's an absolute statement in the Greeks. Not, no, you can try, maybe some will and some won't. No, nobody. Nobody can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now the Pharisees, here's the other book in, who were lovers of money, were listening to these things. And they were scoffing and belittling Jesus. You see the bookends? Pharisees that are criticizing Jesus because he hangs out with sinners. Jesus teaches a story about the priority of lost things. He moves straight into a parable of unjust steward. And the Pharisees 
who were lovers of money were making fun, scoffing, and discounting Jesus. Pray with me in this few minutes that we have left. Father God, in these moments, I pray and plead that you would take control of the faults of my mind, the words of my mouth, so that that which is spoken might come from you and be spoken to your church. Father, you know my prayers for Eastridge Baptist Church. You heard them in my prayer closet. And so, Father, I pray for a freedom of your spirit to move in the hearts of your people. I pray for a awareness of your presence in this room because, Lord, you promised if we congregate in the name of your son, Jesus, you were here in the midst of us. And so, Father, you speak. You help me get out of the way. You just, you utilize me strictly as your mouthpiece so that that which is said from this point forward might come from you and be spoken directly to your people. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. It's a lot of scripture. Let me, let me tell you this. I'll give them that next slide. I don't, I don't know that I've got, I don't know that I've got channel. I don't know if I've got control here. We'll give them a second slide. Maybe not. As you're turning there, if you'll give them a second slide. What is preaching? Phillips Brooks, which is a great uh, lecture on preaching from uh, the 19th century said preaching is merely the communication of human of divine truth through human personality and so whatever man stands before God's people and preaches God's word which is truth can only do it through the personality that God has given him and so you don't know me and I don't know you but let me tell you a little bit of a story about myself are we still messed up up there here in a few seconds, you're going to see a picture of my family, my family of origin. This is where I was born. This is where I was reared. This is a, this is a picture of my family on my wedding day, July 25th, 1987. When the picture gets up there, you'll see a picture of my dad. How many of you like Lawrence Welk? Lawrence Welk? My dad played for Lawrence Welk when I was a kid. I grew up on a bandstand. Mom was a singer. Daddy was a piano player. They were both educators. I grew up on a bandstand and started playing my dad's orchestra when I was 15. Before I was a, before I was a preacher, I was a banker and a businessman for about 15 years. And before I was a banker and businessman, don't tell anybody, but I was a beer joint piano player. I played in my daddy's orchestra, which was kind of a you know, country club kind of thing. We played all the society gigs when I got in high school, the urban cowboy craze came along and I joined a country band and we toured uh, the rodeo circuit, played with a lot of guys that you probably know, doesn't make a difference, but uh, that's just my story, that's who I am. But this picture of my sister, if it ever gets up, and it's okay if it doesn't because we don't need pictures to preach the word, do we? My sister was a hopeless alcoholic. She was a child of the 60s. And she somehow got submerged in that party culture. And she just never, ever, ever recovered. My entire recollection of her, my entire life, was she was struggling with some sort of uh, addiction, primarily alcohol. And she was a beautiful woman, very intelligent. Uh, and uh, at some point, uh, I became kind of her primary caretaker. My, my folks had had tended to her for so long, they were tired, they wanted to travel. I told mom and dad, I said, just go. Brett, my brother and I will take care of her. We put her in one of our houses, and, and, and she lived in the same city I did, and it was my job to kind of see if I could, you know, 
call, solve the chaos. She's very timid, and I used to tell her, so then soon, you're not going to get over this addiction unless you get into a support group. I was teaching the scriptures, working at a church that had a 12-step program. Have you ever been to a 12-step program? You walk in, she was so afraid to go, so I'll go with you. My first exposure to a true 12-step environment. So I would go into these rooms, and, and the protocol goes something like this. My sister would walk in to a room of people she had never met before, and she would timidly say, hi, my name is Linda Sue, and I'm an alcoholic. Do you know what they would say back? Anybody ever been to a 12-step group? You don't have to say that loud, because I don't want people. You know what they say back? They say, hey, Linda with warmth and compassion and empathy. Do you know why? Because they know what she's struggling against. With me? And so though I don't know you, if preaching is an effort of communicating divine truth through human personality, let me, let me just say hi. My name's Bart, and I am a recovering materials. I'm not recovered. It's not over. It's a battle that I fight every day. If you would have met me as a young 20-something year old man out of college, if you would have asked me what made me tick, what made me go, if you would have asked me about my life goals, it would not be to marry the priest girl in class. Mine was raised as a financial animal by a financial father. My daddy made a financial statement every month of his life because he was a product of the Great Depression. He watched his mom and dad go through the Great Depression and those of you that remember the generations that, that remember what it was to live without almost a bare, the basic necessity. But my dad was just a very astute financial man. And he took his two boys and he taught us how to make money and to manage money. And so if you would have met me and if you would have been able to see inside of what made me tick, you would have recognized that I was driven by the pursuit of wealth. And I served in an industry where everybody around me did the same thing. That if you were going to succeed in this industry that I was in, you would look after and you would covet the lives of those men that had made it and were worth tremendous amounts of money. And friends, so let me just say, I've known some of the richest people in Houston, Texas during my 12 years as a banker. And some of the unhappiest people I have ever seen in my life are the richest people I've ever known in my life. And so the scripture teaches more about material possessions and money and stewardship than it, preaches on, than it teaches on prayer, for heaven's sake. And so as I work with churches around the state, I, I believe that God is brought me through a unique life journey because I say I'm a recovering material. So I got to a point in my life where I recognized that that was not the main thing. And that was 12 years after I was saved. And so what we have to look at is just this big idea of the sermon, if you give them that next slide, which is in your first blank, it's the priority of lost things. If I'm going to talk about God to you today, and every preacher ought to, every Sunday he opens God's word, amen? amen? I'm going to say that God has an anxious longing for lost things. That Jesus came to this world to seek and to save that which is what? 
lost. That it's not the Father's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus was sent. He, being in the very form of God, thought equality with God not a thing to be grasped and held on to, but emptied himself and jumped down in this sin-sick, chaotic world and became for us a righteous sacrifice so that we might trade our guilt for his innocence. That's the essence of the gospel. That he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on my behalf in order that I might become the righteousness of God in him. Can I tell you what you cannot be? cannot be a Christian, authentically saved, and God not work on you in this arena of stewardship. Just can't. The way I read this book, it's just not possible. You can't serve God in money. You'll either love one and hate the other. You'll either cling to one and dispense the other. You cannot serve God in money. And yet in my time in the ministry, I've been privileged to work on staff at three churches, been a senior pastor at one for 10 years, an executive teaching pastor at another church for about three or four. I served a church as a layman and a treasurer while I was a corporate downtown businessman. And I've worked with innumerable churches preaching messages like this because when I talk to preachers and say, hey, when was the last money sermon? So I, I, I don't like to preach on money because it makes my people mad. And I've heard it all. I heard it all when I preached. Oh, the only thing that church is interested in is my money. God doesn't care about your money. You know why? Because it's not your money anyway. It's his. You own absolutely nothing. You are simply a steward or a manager to everything that he has entrusted to your care. That's the big disconnect. You see, one of the big ten says, you shall have no other gods before me. Amen? Another one of the Big Ten says, you shall not covet. Jesus, on one occasion like this, where there was a gathering, a man interrupted him, said, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This is one chapter later. And people got money, money, money on their brain. And Jesus said, who made me judge over you? Beware. Be on your guard against all forms of greed, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. But as American Westerners, we've been programmed since the time we were even younger than your two boys, that whatever we have, we ought to be wanting something else, something more. It's the word pleonexia in the Greek. It's greed, which Paul says in the Colossian letter is idolatry. You know what the challenge is in the average evangelical church? I bet I've done 50 of these things since my time as an executive director of the foundation. I did it for every church I served, and I did it for every church that I worked for, even pre-ministry. Is that we're not preaching the counsel of God's word to bring people into a gentle conf uh, confrontation with the fact that the average evangelical Christian is an idolater and their God is money. And the evidence of that is that I've yet to do a stewardship assessment where the overwhelming majority of the receipts of that particular church are not coming from the overwhelming minority of the people. 
that there are significant amounts, pockets of Christian. These are well-meaning people. Oh, by the way, let me say this. God is not mad at you for this. He just wants to tell you the truth so that you can escape the bondage of idolatry to money. It does not satisfy, and it will certainly fail you. Naked you came into this experiment. Naked you're going out of this experiment unless somebody dresses you up in that box they put you in. You brought nothing into this world. You will take nothing out of this world. The only thing that matters is decisions that we make for Christ and God and the forward progress of God's kingdom in these few brief years that we've been given to live on the face of this planet. Two parables, five parallels, six principles, one challenge. This notion of the main point of the sermon and the parallels that exist between the two is people's receptivity to the gospel. I'll be honest. I work with pastors all over the state, and we talk about issues of stewardship. By the way, they did not teach us any of this in seminary. Surprised me. When I was a businessman, I owned my own business. I was shocked when God called me in ministry. Literally shocked. The biggest person that was surprised when God tapped me on the shoulder and said, I'd like for you to follow me and give up everything. See, I owned a business. And it was about 36, 37 things were starting to work. And, and this pursuit of wealth and everything that you know, would buy me was, was starting to take hold. And God tapped me on the shoulder and said, I'd like you to surrender everything and follow me. I kind of had my rich young ruler moment. Remember that? Where God comes up to Jesus and says, good, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said, you know the law. What does it say? God repeats the law. And uh, Jesus said, that's right. And, and he said, all these things I've done since my youth, but what, what do I lack? Because he knew he was missing something. And Jesus looked at him with compassion, not with judgment, out of love. And said, this one thing you lack, go sell everything you own, come and follow me with this. The man's countenance fell. He turned around. He made a deliberate decision. And he left the presence of Jesus and walked away from the good news of the gospel. And Jesus, with I think a tear in his eye, told his disciples, it's harder for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle. It's a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's a rich man to go You do recognize that as Americans, we are richer than 85, 87, maybe 90% of the world's population. You have a roof over your head, you have climate control, and you got clothes to wear more than, say, five days in a row in a week. You are incredibly wealthy by the world's standards. And yet we are so infatuated with our stuff, so much so that we don't possess our stuff, our stuff possesses us. And so people's receptivity to the gospel many times is that when you preach things like money, they say, ah, you know, I don't like that. Friends, you do recognize that the gospel is a stumbling block. Amen? It's a stone of offense. And the only people I've ever in my pastorate, I've pastored for 13 years, the only people that ever really got mad at me when I preached on money were the people that weren't giving me any. No, they weren't giving it to me. They were giving it to God. But friends, money, money is just a thing. It, it can't be our God. And so... The people's receptivity to the truth of the gospel, God's reception of sinners and his desire to fellowship with them. You do recognize that your city is exploding in growth. Amen? 
You know the only thing it takes to reach them with the gospel, right? Is a gospel-centric pulpit and a people so infatuated with making Christ known in their community. You can't depend on your pastor to preach them into heaven. You've got to live them into heaven. You've got to meet them in the highways and the hedges. They've got to see Christ in you Monday through Saturday before your preacher can preach Christ to them on Sunday. And they might not even be here unless you invite them. Amen? This city is exploding in growth. And God's reception of sinners, you see the church so much today is known for what it's against and not what it's for. God's reception of sinners and his desire to fellowship with them. There's some real consequences of squandering financial wealth. We will all be held accountable for our management of the assets that God entrusts to our care. Probably the most poignant moment is where both of these guys come to this moment of clarity where they make a very deliberate and decisive plan and they put it into action. And that comes at a point of crisis. For the prodigal son, it was a crisis of need. At the parable of the unjust steward, it's a crisis of accountability. But they both come up with a plan. And the funny thing about it is that there's this big aha, I didn't see that coming moment in both, in both parables. The, 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 the parable of the prodigal son, the moment where you want to see the resolve. I, I, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask... Why do you, what, what's, the, what's, the, what's the rest of the story? I, I got this whole Paul Harvey temperament when it comes to parable problems. I want to know the rest of the story. What happened to the older son? Did he get it? Did he come into the party? You see, that's the tension that the gospel writer through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is trying to create at the end of 15 as he moves into 16. And so there's this shocking reality of the father's dilemma. How many of you thought the prodigal son was about the younger son? It's about the older one. The younger son is safe. He got it. He came home. We don't know about the older brother. And in the parable of the unjust steward, I just thought, well, gosh, this guy's cheating you. He's squandering. He's wasting the manager's resources. And now he's, he's frauding him. Uh, you know, how much do you owe? Oh, uh, a million dollars. Right, 500000 and because there's no way for the master to know. He, would, he was called to give an accounting. He was supposed to bring the books into the master. So when the books were doctored, and you actually owed the master a million, but I brought your debt down to 500, then I just created a $500,000 windfall for you. Why did he do that? So that the day after he's fired, he could ring your doorbell and say, do you have room for me in your guest suite? He's trying to, he's trying to get access into a earthly dwelling and so let me just tell you those are the five parallels let's just look very quickly at the principles the principles of accountability we will all be held accountable for the stewardship of the assets and the blessings and the time and the talents and the treasures that God entrusts to our care I don't know how I was born with the musical gift I was born with my daddy said from the time I could crawl, if he sat down and played the piano, he said, wherever you were in the house, you would crawl to the piano. You would put your ear on the piano. He said, I could play for an hour and a half. You would not move. I do not have any recollection of not being able to sit down at that instrument and play. If I can hear it, I can play it. I was gifted with perfect pitch. I can see music in my brain. 
And yet, for a period of time, and I don't think it was, I don't think God was mad at me because I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was making a living playing professional music. But at some point, God said, I don't want that in a dance hall. I want that in the church. <laughs> Remember, that was a crisis for me. When a guy, when I was in college, said, hey, I want you to play piano at our noon Bible study the, at the Baptist Student Ministry. And I, I remember the, what I said to him. I said, I don't play piano for free. I play piano for a living. What a stupid and arrogant thing to say. And so as God began to draw more and more of me into the church, just like he did with my talents, but he also did it with my treasures. Because, friends, there was a time where I was marginally or sometimes just completely disengaged from the stewardship reality of my church. It wasn't until my pastor, in love, sat down and confronted me on it. He did it by affirmation. He said, Bart, I see God doing all sorts of works in your life. I, I believe that God can use you, but I think there's one area that he wants to grow you in. And, and this is about growing into the fullness of Christ. We don't expect a, a two-year-old to wake up tomorrow morning and act like an 18-year-old. We, we expect him to act like a two-year-old. And so I was still an infant in my pilgrimage and stewardship. He said, unless, unless they're just not paying you what they should, my wife and I were double income, no kids. We both had downtown white collar jobs working in pretty good positions. And my pastor in love said, unless something's wrong, I think you're just tipping God instead of, and God wants to grow you up. And, that, and you know what? He was right. And I knew it. And I was already under conviction of it, but it was at the urging and the loving confrontation of my pastor that I responded to that. We will all be held accountable for the assets, the stewardship of the assets God entrusts to our care. What is this I hear about you? Notice that the prodigal son wasted everything and the father still received him back into the house. You see there's a balance, there's a tension and a balance here. Because I can't allow you to even consider the fact that just because you give money in the support of God works means you're even saved. Can't buy your way into heaven. Grace is free. Amen? Amen. It is by grace you are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man boast. I had men that I shepherded who felt like it was their duty to tell the pastor how to pastor predicated on how much money they gave to the church. And I just, and I guess it's because I was older. I just said, man, I appreciate your input, but I, I've got to do what, I serve at the pleasure of many, but I serve for an audience of one. I lost six of my top 10 giving units in the first 18 months of my ministry because men wanted to vote with their checkbook. They wanted to dictate by the amount of money they gave to the church. Once you put God's money back in God's plate, you have no right, responsibility, or, 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 or even privilege to tell anybody what to do with God's money. Don't fall for that, friends. And so there's this principle of accountability. There's this principle of, of, of self-preservation. You see, truth is what enables us to make wise and deliberate choices. And clarity always comes in times of crisis. I'm going to say to you that from a numbers perspective, we're going to go over some of the numbers in a second. Quite honestly, the numbers don't. The numbers are just a big arithmetic problem. Numbers tell a story. God's word tells you the solution. But with that said, your church fellowship is not far from crisis. And clarity comes 
in times of crisis. Prodigal son didn't decide to go back home until he was needy, hungry, dirty, and the unrighteous steward didn't make his deliberate, very clear and decisive plan until he got noticed that he had to give an accounting of his stewardship. Clarity always comes in times of crisis. And so I believe this is just an opportunity for God's people to hear God's word and respond to God's word, God's way, and to get on with it. I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you this in a second. God's never going to run out of money. He doesn't need my money to do his work. He doesn't need your money to do his work. He just wants to see if you want to join him in the work that he's going to do. One, it, it, regardless, God is sovereign. He is free and able to do all that he desires. His will is the final cause of all things. God does not need me to underwrite his ministry. He just wants to know if I'm going to participate because he will reward in the life to come all sorts of things. But clarity comes in times of crisis. I'll tell you, when God called me into full-time vocational ministry, that was a crisis for me. But it really got down to one simple thing. If God wants everything that I've got, am I willing to give it to him? And when I said yes to that, just everything came into clarity. The principle of shrewdness, making deliberate, decisive plans to access a benefactor's provision is wise and commendable. Prodigal son says, well, I'm just going to go home and try to be a slave. At least I can sleep in the slave's quarter and get three squares a day. He's trying to access the father's provision. What he didn't get was treatment as a slave. He got treatment as a son. God always receives repentant sinners with the full bounty of his abundance and his provisions. That when we come back to him, he forgives our sins and he removes them as far as the east is from the west, buries them in the depths of the sea, remembers them no more. What a good and gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father we have. <coughs> I had a bunch of people when I preach on money. I preached 15 weeks a year on money in a 52-week calendar. Probably eight Sunday mornings a year. I did this for 12 years in a row. And what God began to do is remove our people from the bondage of idolatry where their God was money. And they became more joyful and more, they became, they seemed with greater clarity how God was working in their midst. But it's the principle of shrewdness. It means to act with insight, to make the right decision, to make wise decisions. Making deliberate and decisive plans to access a benefactor's provision is wise and commendable. When Jesus gets to the principles, he talks about making friends for yourselves by the use of unrighteous mammon so that when it fails, not if it fails, but when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, this is the dots that I can't connect. There's a bunch of mysteries in God's word, and y'all have been arguing over some of them. But here's another mystery. And I'm glad this is not for any pastor to decide or any preacher like myself. There are some that will be saved as but by fire. That at the end of the age, God will test your works. Some of it's just going to burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. You're not going to have anything to show for the fact that Jesus gave it all for you. That though he was rich, yet for my sake he became poor, that through his poverty I might become rich. Some of it will be 
gold and precious metal. It'll survive the test of fire. But I don't know how salvation can be authentic and the word faithfully preached and people not come under conviction of the Holy Spirit in the arena of stewardship. And I'm not sure some people that think they're saved are saved because their entire life, God is their money, their money is their God, and that's all they pursue. They might come to church on Sunday, but that's all they do. And so uh, shrewdness, managing with insight. The principle of wealth, money will always fail you when it becomes our focal pursuit. Man, I'm talking about me, friends. I'm not talking about you. I wrote these points looking at my life, not looking at anybody's life other than me. I'm, I'm, I'm the best... Uh, parser of me you know other than my wife I think my wife knows me pretty well money will always fail us when it becomes our focal pursuit that was me though I cannot serve God and money because that's what the parable says Jesus gets you in the parable says you cannot serve God and money Bart you cannot do it but with money I can't serve God and so I wasn't born a tither and I wasn't born generous. I was born stingy and greedy. When my brother and I, my brother Tim, I told him, no one had to teach me to, to pull something in my brother's hand and say, mine, or whatever I had, whatever my brother was playing with, I wanted. We're greedy, covetous people. That's our sin nature. That's our fallen rebellion. And God is trying to break us up. And so I wasn't born... A tither, I wasn't born generous. But now God has done a transforming work in my life to where I can serve God with my money. Oh, by the way, it's not even my money. It's His money. Amen? And so this is called the principle of wealth. Principle of faithfulness. What most people need is not more money, but more encouragement to be faithful with what they currently have. I used to have a guy in my church. He used to say this to me. And he was just, he, he was so fun. And I, I loved him so much. He's with the Lord now. And he wasn't much of a giver, just to be honest with you. Most pastors do not look at giving records because they, they just feel it's dangerous. I got to the point where I did look at giving records simply because I was trying to shepherd the sheep that God had entrusted to my care. The scariest verse in all the scripture is, Bart, you shepherd the flock of God that I entrust to your care as one who must give an account. God, that scared me. So I began to look at giving records because I could do it without passing judgment. I just recognized that I might be looking at somebody's life at a point where I used to be. And I had one guy say, well, if I won the lottery, I'd start tithing immediately. I said, no, you wouldn't. He said, I would, Pastor. I said, no, you wouldn't. He said, no, if I came into a bunch of money, I would start tithing all at once. I'd pay off all my this and do all that, and I would, I'd just start tithing. And I opened the scripture. I said, I want you to read this first. He who is not faithful with a little will not be faithful with much. And if God cannot entrust riches to you, how money with you, how, how will he entrust true riches to you? And that was his first step where I said, look, I, I'm just asking you to take the first couple steps of obedience in this area. Be faithful with what you've got. Amen. We used to argue about this. Oh, I'd do it. No, you wouldn't. Yeah, I would. What, what, what makes you say I wouldn't do that if I won the lottery? I said, well, because you're not being faithful with what you have now. What makes you think you'd be faithful with a bunch of stuff that you might get? Oh, by the way, you're not going to win the lottery. I might. Really, you're not. You have a better chance of getting struck by lightning than winning the lottery. That was a whole other thing he used to debate. 
the principle of lordship. No servant can serve two masters. Jesus, if he's going to be my Lord, money cannot. Amen? You've got to say amen to that. I'm going to say again. Amen? Just making sure you're still awake. I'm almost done. Next slide, please. The principle of lordship, the principle of wealth, two parables, five parallels, six principles, only one response. And that was, what will you do with it? I think sometimes uh, it's a mistake because people do have a financial reality of their household. And some people have made poor decisions or they may have had, you know, things beyond their control. And they have financial demands on their household that make it difficult. And so if a preacher ever stands, this is a pilgrimage. This is a growth maturity. At some point, your two boys will be young men. They'll be 18, 20, 22. And at that point, you can only, you, you dream about what they will be like, the men that they'll become but they're still just boys. Some people, when you preach on stewardship, you forget the fact that you have different levels of maturity in a room. So I've heard preachers preach that, you know, you gotta, you gotta tr trust God. Man, just start giving 10% of your gross income. And people can't connect those two dots. And I said, well, just get in your prayer closet and say, what can you start with? What is your first step of obedience in the arena of stewardship? And I've worked with all sorts of people on this. Had people come to our church and say, man, we need help. We need, some, we need financial delivery in our household. I look at their budgets, and they're paying more for cable TV than, than I've ever imagined is possible. So would you be willing to sacrifice a couple of hundred channels for a high-definition antenna just to watch three? Because that would be an interesting first step of obedience. Well, I don't know if I can sacrifice that. Well, Jesus, did, you know, Jesus gave his life for you. Uh, what would you be willing to sacrifice for him? I commit myself to God's accountability and with shrewdness will faithfully steward his resources with an eternal mindset. As we move from our time of worship and preaching into a town hall forum where we talk numbers, if there's anybody in this room that has heard this message and thinks God is about getting money. I've missed the whole point because every sermon ever preached must end in the shadow of the cross. That God took him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf in order that I might become the righteousness of God in him. That though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. That through his poverty I might become rich, richly blessed. Jesus loves lost people. Jesus sits at the right hand of God right now. There's one lost soul in this room right now. He's not praying about the stewardship crisis that this church is in. He's praying about the lost soul. Amen? And so what the gospel is, is good news. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That if we will repent, confess him, turn from our ways, throw ourselves on the grace and the mercy and love of God. He'll cause us to be born again to a life that he calls abundant. If that's you, friend, forget everything I said about money and see Jesus as the great rescuer of your soul. Amen? For the rest of you as God's children, I believe God wants his church to experience a stewardship revival.
a fresh pouring out of his spirit. Do you know why? Because hundreds of thousands of people are going to move within a five to ten mile radius of this church. And the overwhelming majority of them have no idea who Jesus is. And this pulpit and this pastor and this people are called to show Jesus to a lost and dying world in such a compelling way that God draws people to salvation. Do you believe that? Do you believe God can fill this room three times on a Sunday morning with lost people that, like Luke 15, are coming to hear about Jesus because he's so attractive? You'll miss it if you fall prey to legalism. You'll miss it if you fall prey to playing church and arguing amongst yourself about anything other than what God has called this church to be. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to have a word of prayer. I didn't have a chance to ask Casey what your invitation protocol is, but every sermon must have a time of response. And so whatever the culture of this church is, simply ask the Lord, Lord, what would you have me do with this word that I've heard? Perhaps it's an additional step of obedience in the reign of stewardship. Maybe it's salvation. However God, rededication. However God chooses to use this sermon in your life, please ask him. Listen for that still voice and respond accordingly. Father God, your word has been preached. Your people have assembled. And you've been in our midst. And no man can preach a sermon that will save anybody, Lord. They can only be saved if you draw them. Sermons don't save. Only Jesus saves. And so help us to see Jesus in this passage. Help us to see the steps that he would desire us to take. Lord, through your spirit, feel the freedom to do whatever it is you desire in this time of decision. And we'll be careful to give you all the credit, praise, glory, and honor for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.